0: Brought to you by CGTN Europe.
1: Hello, I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. This week, we're looking at powering the future. As the world's leaders set themselves increasingly tough targets to cut back on carbon emissions, does this mark the end of our reliance on fossil fuels? And that's a point I put to Joseph McMoneagle, Secretary-General of the International Energy Forum, who told me the pandemic has proved that those who are writing oil's obituary may be rather premature.
2: Certainly, Covid has has had an impact, for sure. Uh, I would say, you know, one year about this time, we had, you know, a pretty dramatic uh, decline in uh, Energy demand. We had uh, probably uh, we lost about 10 million barrels a day, Uh, but you know uh, forecasts for this year show a a rebound of about uh, five to six uh, million barrels a day. Um, You know, but while certainly the impact uh, to demand was profound and unprecedented, uh, you know, really the biggest demand shock in history. It's important to note that 90% of the demand remained intact, which demonstrates, I think, oil's resiliency and necessity to fuel the world economy. Um, We also identified a big problem that could create significant headwinds just as the global economy tries to recover and the world unlocks from COVID. And uh, this is regarding investment. And the IEF, in collaboration with Boston Consulting Group, published a report uh, in December, that warned of future supply shocks uh, caused by mainly oil and gas companies, but some uh, national uh, oil companies, reducing investments uh, due to the pandemic. And and basically, last year, CapEx cuts totaled about 35 percent. And this year, they're, they're forecast to be between 20 and 30 and percent.
1: If the investment is falling away, isn't that the clearest signal yet that people are thinking about other fuels apart from fossil fuels?
2: Well, I mean, certainly there are uh, impacts regarding ESG investing uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and the move towards the energy transition. But really, uh, the investment uh, crisis that we talked about in our report is, is directly related to the demand hit uh, from covid now, but to your point, I mean, obviously, pre COVID, we saw a lot of capital flight from the sector. Uh, a lot of that had to do with, um, you know, basically shareholder returns. Uh, you know, you had uh, shareholders move into other growth sectors like, uh, you know, healthcare and technology. Uh, but I think we're starting to see actually now that the, Uh, you know, oil prices have have gone up a little bit and it looks like we have this very robust uh, demand outlook.
1: If there is a fall-off in investment, which you say may well be bouncing back a little now, and I'm thinking perhaps an attempt around the world to move away from fossil fuels like uh, oil, uh, coal, could gas be a bridging uh, force in in any of this, natural gas, uh, for the future?
2: Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I do believe natural gas is a is a transition fuel, and uh, it's certainly cleaner uh, a cleaner fuel. We can make tremendous progress from coal to gas uh, switching, uh, absent other you know clean technologies to, to burn uh, coal uh, more cleanly. Um, but you know, gas is really going to is is a basically right now clean fuel. Uh, That uh, can be scaled up, Uh, and certainly renewables uh, play a role, but not basically you can't use wind and solar in every every uh, uh, application, and so you're going to need hydrocarbons, mainly uh, natural gas, uh, to kind of fuel I think this the growing demand in um, in basically non. OECD countries and and you know really talking a lot of, of Asia here, heading towards COP twenty six. I mean the
1: ultimate goal uh, is carbon neutral. Is that achievable?
2: Yes, it is achievable. The question is what are the pathways and is it truly a transition or is this a you know some kind of disruptive. And I don't mean that disruptive in terms of energy sources, but it disruptive in terms of, of uh, you know, the global economy. The important point here is that achieving net zero is not the same as ceasing fossil fuel consumption, because there are many technologies in development that, that could remove carbon emissions created by burning fossil fuels or offset them. Uh, so limited fossil fuel consumption could still continue even with uh, net zero emissions. Look, I think everybody agrees that achieving carbon neutrality is a huge undertaking that will require really an unprecedented global effort. Wind and solar are sort of you know mainstream uh, you know technologies now. Uh, nuclear also is, and all three of those have to grow. Uh, as part of this mix. And I know nuclear is controversial, but people are just going to have to get over it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but in terms of new technologies, hydrogen certainly has the most momentum, but there could be others. You could have fusion, uh, methane hydrates. We have to create new technologies uh, you know, to address climate change. We, we can't do it with existing technologies. We're not going to you know, go off fossil fuels tomorrow. So we need to replace them, and these technologies don't exist yet, or they're just not even in a commercialization phase. Joseph
1: McMonigal, thank you for joining us on the agenda. Thank you. So as the world looks to alternative sources of energy, what will that mean for the companies known until now as oil and gas giants? To get some insight, I'm joined by Ulrika Wising, Global Vice President of Customer Renewable and Energy Solutions at Shell. Ulrika, Shell says it wants to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or possibly sooner. How will you go about achieving that?
0: Well, first of all, uh, we aim to be net zero on all the emissions from the manufacturing of all of our products. So reducing the energy that we use when we produce our products in addition to that, we aim to reduce the carbon intensity of the energy products that we sell uh, by 65% by 2050. And then thirdly, and I think uh, almost most importantly, is that we want to help our customer decarbonize. So by helping our customers in the energy transition will ultimately also reduce the, uh, the energy footprint of Shell uh, because the customers will want uh, less and less uh, energy intensive and carbon intensive products. And in doing so, we shift our production to those type of products and also then decarbonize.
1: OK, so how or what steps are you taking to encourage your customers to decarbonize?
0: So I think it requi- it's one of those that it requires a village. It really does. Uh, you know, we're... Working with our customers that we've already had really strong relationship with, uh, and we're we're using the uh, fantastic you know engineering skills that sits within Shell and expertise that we have, and working together with the customer, but also with policymakers to really accelerate the transition sector by sector, but really analysing the sectors and how sectors can have a sustainable pathway in that energy transition.
1: And that's many different challenges, isn't it? Because there are different sectors, different customers, uh, as you say, aviation, shipping, freight, uh, to name but a few. So how do you improve their footprints?
0: So I think that there's many different uh, pathways to decarbonisation of the different sectors. And like you said, not every sector is... Uh, created equal, nor is any individual company within a sector created equal. Uh, But um, for example, uh, if you take uh, a a sector like aviation as a hypothetical example, uh, today uh, we create emissions uh, when we produce jet fuels that, that planes need to fly. But then if you look at the aviation companies, they then create emissions when they use the jet fuel to fly. And these are scope three emissions. Dealing with scope three starts with reducing the net carbon footprint of the energy we sell to the aviation industry. So that will mean selling increasing amounts of lower, lower carbon fuels over time, such as biofuels, or even in the future, maybe green hydrogen. But even in 2050, some large planes will still need to use conventional jet fuel. And that's why we're, try, we're aiming to be a net zero emission energy business by then. We must work with the aviation industry to help them deal with those emissions that are left. And the answer is likely going to involve balancing those emissions through nature or technology.
1: So it's going to be a while yet before we give up totally on fossil fuels, isn't it?
0: We have gas uh, uh, electricity generation, and those are going to continue. But take the UK's example again the coal fired power plants have not been forced out of uh, operation through regulation per se. They've actually been forced out of operation because they're just too expensive to run. Uh, and it's much uh, more cost efficient to build renewables. Uh, so I think we're just going to see that transition continuing to happen. Now, we know that fossil fuel will play a key role in decades to come, and not just for energy, but for a lot of the other things that we need for our day-to-day lives. Um, uh, but we also need know that we need to uh, play a role in, in transitioning to renewables and low-carbon right. fuels.
1: indeed. Ulrika Weising, Global VP at Shell UK, thanks for joining us on The Agenda. 10% of the world's energy is currently provided by nuclear power. Its proponents insist it's the clean and the efficient solution to global energy supply, but concerns among consumers over safety refuse to go away. So what does the future hold for nuclear power? Joining me now is Dr Jonathan Cobb and Dr Cobb is spokesperson for the World Nuclear Association. What would you say to people who are frightened of nuclear power?
3: Well, I think the thing to understand with nuclear power is that it is something that's providing an enormous benefit at the moment in supplying that 10% of electricity without greenhouse gas emissions, supplying it cleanly, so generating more electricity than wind, than solar, And it's been supplying that clean electricity for more than 60 years, saving the emission of more than 2 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide each year. So it really is a key part of the the clean energy mix that we're going to need and we're going to need to grow over the coming years in order to transition to a net zero electricity generation mix.
1: So where do you place nuclear power in in the mix of renewable uh, power supplies? Where does it fit in? It
3: fits in by providing a a constant and reliable supply of electricity that can be a a backbone, a foundation to a, a grid that can then accommodate more generation from wind, from solar, which provide also clean electricity, but are also intermittent because not always you have wind blowing or sun shining when you need it. So combining nuclear with the renewable options, as well as bringing in energy storage, bringing in production of hydrogen, Mixing all those together in a a future clean energy system, they can all work together to to make that possible. And we really need to to move to that system in only a few decades.
1: According to a report by BP, only 10.4% of the world's electricity was generated uh, by nuclear power in 2019 and only represents 4.6% of global energy consumption. Do you think those proportions will rise in the near future? And... How high could they go?
3: I think they will have to, if we're going to succeed both in having a clean energy transition and providing enough electricity, enough energy, in order to get to that uh, low-carbon mix uh, and still provide enough power to all the people around the world that need it. Um, Say, but just 10%. It's 10%. That's more electricity that's being supplied at the moment by wind, more electricity that's being supplied at the moment by solar. So it's a substantial amount, and it's an amount that's been there for a a long time. But there's definitely a need to increase it. I think we need to look at a a mix of different clean energy technologies working together. Uh, A target that uh, World Nuclear Association has set is for 25% of the world's electricity to be supplied by nuclear energy by 2050. Now, that's an achievable target. It requires a build rate for nuclear power stations, that is about the same as was happening in the 1980s. So it doesn't need a a major development in terms of build. It's something that we've been able to do. It's a a proven build rate for a proven technology. Mix that 25% of nuclear with all the other clean energy options and it's a thing that can be achieved. It won't be easy, but it will be possible.
1: Lastly, uh, Dr Cobb, we've talked about wind, solar, geothermal, etc., various types of power sources... For the future. But is it true to say that really it comes down to nuclear uh, taking over from fossil fuels for a cleaner future?
3: I I think if anybody tells you that one particular technology is the answer to tackling climate change, to moving to a clean energy system, that they're wrong. It's not true. It's a very much more complicated situation. It is going to require all those different forms of clean energy, electricity generation. It's also going to require clean energy, which isn't electricity. So one application of nuclear energy in the future would be uh, to generate high temperature heat for industry. So it can be used to replace coal burning in industry. We're also going to need to produce hydrogen cleanly, and nuclear can do that, as well as charging electric cars. So it really is a very complicated mix. I'm very optimistic that we can achieve a clean energy future. But that optimism doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's vital. And I think nuclear energy has got a vital role to play as part of a mix in achieving that.
1: Dr Jonathan Cobb of the World Nuclear Association, many thanks for joining us on the agenda. Thank you. Of course, the hope is that one day the world will be able to be powered by entirely renewable, clean and green energy sources. how likely is that to happen, and perhaps more importantly, when? Well, joining me now from Abu Dhabi is Francesco La Camera, the Director-General of the International Renewable Energy Agency. Francesco, at the Climate Summit in April, President Biden pledged to cut carbon emissions by half by the end of 2030, and that's not very long away, just nine years away. What impact would that have on the renewable energy sector do you think
4: the announcement made by uh, president biden is very very important because it's giving a very clear sign signal to the market so the world economy the business is now aware that governments together they are heading to the 1.5 degrees uh, objective and from this, doing this, they have to halve, as the IPPC has been suggested in their 1.5 uh, report a couple of years ago, they have to reduce 45% at least their emission compared to 2010. So country may use a different uh, uh, time for starting the, uh, on counting on that, but in the average, this is the result.
1: But so many green targets sustainable targets are set and the goals are not met. So how can you be so certain that President Biden's target will be achieved?
4: We have uh, uh, monitored that last year, we have had the best, best, uh, the, 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 the best increase in renewable energy capacity, 260 gigawatts, 50% more than the previous year. So there are also all this commitment coming from many countries around all the world, from China to US to South Korea to Japan to South Africa, that make us hoping that this time will be the good time to go in the right direction fast.
1: IRENA and China's State Grid Corporation signed an agreement uh, in April to uh, enhance its power
4: system. What, what is the plan and what can you offer? So, we are not only... We have already signed with uh, State Grid, but we are also going to sign with uh, the Ministry for uh, Eco- Environment and, and uh, Ecology. And we are also signed with the National Energy Administration. So, uh, during the summit, Xi Jinping have said very clearly that they are going to uh, diminish... Decrease coal use already in 2025. It's the first time that China is talking about very explicitly and setting a time on decreasing coal. And uh, naturally, this is uh, a a way that they can try to to match their goal. So our uh, work with them will be to find the, the right mix for getting the result to be achieved, to provide for inter-exchange of uh, experience and also working on the basis of the experience to disseminate and share this experience with other reality. So it's a full uh, kind of a cooperation, working on the domestic side, but also in the international context. You
1: were just saying that it's not a single type of power. It's not wind, it's not th- geothermal um, it's not hydro, it's a combination of all of those renewables. But I wonder whether renewable energy as a whole could always likely to be supplementary to other, perhaps less clean, types of power in the long run. In other words, will renewable energy sources provide 100% of the world's energy needs ever?
4: So, first of all, if I came I will never define uh, uh, the renewables in the way to clean energy system as a supplement. So as, I, as I, uh, I just say, the energy system of the future will be based on renewables. We will go there through the profound electrification of the energy system. And where it will be difficult to electrify and renewables will provide more than 9% of the power in 2050, so the electricity. They will be also playing a role for the green hydrogen. So hydrogen that will be produced by, by renewables. And we are seeing how the cost of the green hydrogen has been decreasing sharply. I remember that last summer there was already think, think thinking that uh, uh, green hydrogen could become competitive in 2050, but just six months, Later, they said it could be 2030. And now <laughs> companies say that uh, it's 2025. So you see how dramatically is changing the, the view concerning the, the, the green hydrogen. And also the bioenergy is important because uh, coupled with CCS, they can be also go to, to negative uh, emission. So this is the world, the world where we are going. And we will get there, uh, Stefan. The only thing that is relevant if you want to fight climate change, it's time. So we have to do this fastly. At at the end of this decade, as we say at the starting of our uh, chart today, we'll say if we will be able to reach the the goal. Because the later we act, the more difficult it will be to get the result, will be more expensive and sometimes just not achievable.
1: But as you say, Francesco, things are becoming more achievable more quickly than ever before, which is the good news. So, Francesco, La Camera, thank you so much for joining us here on the agenda.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much. If I can say in my language, grazie. Grazie a voi tutti. (laughs) Grazie. I love it.
1: We're taking a break next week, but we'll be back in two weeks' time to look at how Covid has pushed back gender equality by an entire generation. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. And we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. Until next time, goodbye. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth?
0: Will man or machine be in charge?
1: Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person.
0: That's where the credibility lies.
4: The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve?
1: Every episode,
3: Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions.
1: There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project.
0: Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail.
2: Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence.
3: The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.